Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is my co-author, Harrison Kerber, president of Harrison Kerber & Associates, a management consulting firm specializing in strategy and planning for trade associations, professional societies, and other tax-exempt membership organizations. Over the past 35 years, Harrison has consulted with more than 1,300 associations in strategy, planning, governance, and management. Harrison and I met in a strategic planning session that he led for an association that I previously worked for, and we managed to stay in touch since. Harrison, do you remember thinking back, and it's it's fun for us to be having this conversation, especially with the 10th anniversary edition of Race for Relevance coming out, but can you think back? Uh, my mind is a little fuzzy. Uh, when I think about how we connected over the book, what's your recollection? Boy, um, my recollection is that essentially uh, you had book experience and I did not. And so that was something that was attractive to me. Uh, the whole, you know, I had no clue uh, as how the, the process worked, how you developed a proposal, how you uh, kind of shopped that to the various publishing houses and, and the rest. And so uh, that was a, a key reason uh, why I pursued a, a, a partnership with you. Uh, but we had done a little bit of work before that on some, uh, on some writing, some articles, and some outreach to uh, associations. So uh, we weren't total strangers at the time. We had, we had done some work together. But again, you brought that, that book background, that book expertise uh, to the plate that I needed. And you brought the concept. And so when we put those two together, uh, we, we had a, a great partnership. I like to say collaboration is the new currency. And my strengths are your weaknesses and your strengths are my weaknesses, uh, you know, vice versa. So I think we've, we've uh, done a, a fairly good job of uh, balancing each other out and uh, sometimes, frankly, disagreeing with each other. We, haven't, we don't always agree, but we've got a strong enough relationship that we can uh, talk things through, which I think has been important. But let, you know, let's go back. You mentioned that I had book experience and you didn't. Uh, what was it like for you when it came time to actually sit down and start writing? You know, it's one thing to think about writing a book, but it's another thing to really do it. You know, I don't know where I got the idea, um, but but first of all, I'm I'm pretty much a morning person, uh, and so uh, I got into a rhythm of of writing first thing in the morning. And uh, of course, I was just wasn't writing from scratch. I had an outline. I had my thoughts put together. Um, but uh, what my goal was, uh, and, and you were working with me at the time, was to to see if I couldn't uh, crank out about approximately 500 words uh, a day. And uh, that that seemed to to be uh, workable. Um, and uh, you know, I'm a. I, I also a cycle maybe five, six times a week. And, and that gave me time to kind of noodle on my ideas. And so uh, by the time I hit the laptop, I had pretty much sketched out my thoughts and the, the points I wanted to cover, but it was really parsing it out. And, you know, your audience doesn't realize this, but chapters are, are roughly 2,500 to 3,500 words. 
So if you got on a roll, you could knock out a chapter in a week or so. Uh, that's pretty ambitious, and I'm sure I didn't do it. But uh, uh, ten years is you know you're kind in your reflections. Well, that's exactly how I approach my first book: simply by making it a math problem. I sold the nonfiction proposal, and that's what you do with nonfiction: you sell the book before you actually write it. Whereas fiction, you write the book first. So I sold the concept, only had one chapter written, and then I looked at how many weeks I had to finish the project, and I divided it by the number of words that was <laughs> going to be in the book, and I simply made it a math problem, much like you did. And the reality is, is you'll sit down, and some days 500 words flow really easily, and some days they don't. And some days you go back and read what you wrote, and you think none of that's going to work. And sometimes uh, and your co-author gets back to you and says, this doesn't work. Well, there were a few times when that happened. No, there, there were more than a few. You know, I often think about what it must have been like to co-author a book years and years ago without email, without yeah. the internet. Uh, you know, it was so easy for you to do a first draft and send it to me, and then you could move on to the next chapter while I was flushing out the second chapter. And we just went back and forth and back and forth, and we kept doing that long enough until we had the anniversary edition, uh, yeah. which is, is so exciting. Uh, you know, let's talk about that because 10 years have lapsed since the first edition came out. And I think both of us had a little bit of trepidation, wondering how much of it was going to stand the test of time. What What's your observation on that when you Boy, were, went um, manuscript? I guess even I was surprised when uh, we got the go ahead. Of course, the first thing to do was to reread the book and you know, kind of make notes as I went through it. You do, you did the same thing. Uh, you know, what was still uh, relevant? Uh, what uh, still seemed to uh, to be appropriate uh, guidance that we had in the book? And and there is very little uh, that I came across, even in that first reread, that that said, "Boy, we gotta we gotta scrap this, or we gotta walk this back because uh, we were wrong." Uh, on the way that's unfolded. Uh, no, I mean, uh, as we've, we've said, uh, this pandemic uh, threw gas on the fire and the trends that uh, we had identified and the need to respond to them uh, simply accelerated uh, as a result of the pandemic. So, no, and going back and looking back, uh, very proud that, uh, uh, that a lot of our observations most all of our observations were on the money. Uh, you know, people could always argue with uh, our take on how association should respond or what our strategies were to deal with some of those changes. But uh, certainly the, the environment that we laid out uh, has only uh, accelerated in, in terms of its challenge to uh, associations. One of the things that I'm really proud of is we worked hard on updating. So the concepts were the same, but new case studies, new research in terms of the statistics that we provided, new benchmarking. Uh, we've quoted some new research, uh, research that's come into being since the first book came. So uh, it, it wasn't a light lift getting ready for the anniversary edition, but it sure feels good to uh, have an updated offering and some new conversation starters. And I think especially post-pandemic, they're going to be relevant. 
we're really focused on three areas as uh, as we get ready to uh, talk more about what's in the book. Uh, Competency-based boards, program and service evaluation, and a digital first strategy. Let's take those one at a time. Okay. Competency-based boards. Just give us a brief on that from your perspective. I think it's as simple uh, as asking yourself a couple of questions. And, and the first is, uh, as we look down the road over the next five years, uh, what opportunities are there going to be for the association? You know, where, where are opportunities that we can capitalize on? Uh, the second is, what challenges are we going to have in the next five, ten years? Uh, what's going to be, what obstacles or what uh, problematic developments do we see that, that we've got to respond or rectify in some way, shape, or form? And so once you've got that kind of high-level uh, assessment, I think you just have to ask yourself uh, the third question, and that is, what kind of board members do we need to help us either capitalize on those opportunities or deal with some of those challenges? And, uh, and so uh, it's, not a, it's not necessarily a complex question or a complex issue, uh, but it's just a, a, a sensitivity to the fact that we need to compose our boards intelligently and intentionally and strategically. Uh, and our, our experience has been that that's uh, not exactly widespread in, in the association community. Uh, the research that, that you came across, uh, that you know, 3,000 associations that found that only a third of them uh, interviewed their board members before they went on the board was quite frankly, it was a shock to me that I'm sitting there thinking two thirds of our directors go on to their boards without even a fundamental interview to find out their interests, their background, why they wanna be on the board, what they bring to the table. And so uh, that just, you know, that kind of research just reinforced uh, our direction that this being intentional about how we compose our boards and how big they are uh, is something that, that requires attention. That research was from Engel and Brown and is reported and recruit the right board for anybody who's interested. But, you know, bottom line, much, much more intentional and deliberate about recruitment so that we have the brightest and best on our boards. Let's go to program and service evaluation. This happened naturally to an extent during the pandemic as, you know, especially at the beginning when it was all hands on deck and we were just trying to uh, stabilize and survive uh, when things shut down. But talk about the program and service evaluation and why it's valuable going forward. Well, uh, it, it's, it's, it's well-intentioned, but uh, the bottom line is that most associations are trying to do too much. And there's a misconception that uh, the more we do, the more valuable we are to our members. And it's, it's, it's just flawed. Uh, if, if you look at any association's uh, product line or its, its whole array of programs and services, you'll, you'll quickly find that Pareto lives. And he was the Italian that came up with the 80-20 law that says that 20% of your your products and services are going to generate 80% of the value. And so uh, we, we argued that uh, associations efforts were being marginalized by supporting 
programs and services that, that really didn't have the kind of uh, value that uh, is necessary in today's competitive environment. And that the fact that that spread of their resources wide uh, was something that marginalized their performance. And so uh, the, the need to really zero in and focus concentrate resources on the key areas that to deliver value is something that we felt as uh, critically important to associations. And, and like you said, when the pandemic came along, it wasn't really about uh, a voluntary choice. It was like, we only have so much bandwidth right now. Our staff are, are working from home, they're stretched in. We really, really have to concentrate on those things that uh, are performing. And, and consumer product uh, companies, you know, with all the shortages, uh, you know, they, they were looking at raw materials that were going into multiple products and say, listen, we only have so many raw materials yet we're not going to be able to make all six things that need it. And so they had to cut the four or five so that they could concentrate on the, the most uh, products in demand that, that they had the, the raw materials to produce. So uh, we weren't alone uh, and we never are really alone. Well, the uh, matrix that's in the book that walks people through how to do this, I think is valuable. And if listeners are interested, they can find it at raceforrelevance.com along with some of the other matrices in the book. Execs still tell me this is a really hard one though. The, the purposeful abandonment, the letting go is difficult, but it's extremely powerful. And especially as we talk about finding resources for the third topic, and that's the digital first strategy. You and I hear a lot that we can't or we don't have the money, but when you stop pouring money into programs and services that are losing money, you can uh, reallocate those resources. So I think, that's a, I think that's an important point, Mary, is that, you know, it's, it's not abandoning or discontinuing or sunsetting things just because you want to sunset or abandon. It's because you realize that these things are sucking up resources that are starving your winners. And so you, you want to feed your winners and you want to starve your losers is what you're really talking about here. And so it's a resource play. And, uh, and, and to innovate, you need resources. And so the first thing that, that Peter Drucker has always said, and Drucker was the guy that really uh, articulated this, is that you have to start giving things up if, if you want to invest resources in, in future products and, and truly innovate. And in many cases, that in, that investment really should be in uh, strengthening or creating or initiating, depending on where you are, a digital first strategy or a digital first mindset. And that's something I'm proud of. Uh, we touched on it in the first book, but we went much, much deeper. Uh, more interviews. We have some actual charts to show people how groups are doing this. You know, the case studies are there that are impressive. Um, you know, and and we both saw in the pandemic how the how associations who said, you know, members would never attend virtually or we always have to have an in-person component. We saw that members accepted what we thought they would never accept. And it happened overnight because it had to, but uh, have to is a good reason to do something and it creates a sense of urgency. So uh, on the digital first strategy from your standpoint, what's a couple of things associations should be thinking of? I think in a, at a high level, uh, it was something that we said in the book and, and I think it was probably one of the more insightful uh, 
elements of the book, where we said that the model that the associations have followed has, has been one that says that member has to come to the association. So you come to us uh, for the conference, you come to us for the trade show, you come to us to participate in the committee meetings, you come to us uh, to uh, participate on our boards. So that, that was the model. And, and what we said there was that the technology allows us to take the association to the member. And uh, I think initially we said, take it to, to their laptop or to their desktop. But you know, as we wrote and, and mobile applications became more and more predominant, you, know, you could take it to their pocket. Um, and, and ironically, uh, when you really think about it, uh, one of the things we've learned in the, in the pandemic is that we can fundamentally run our associations off of our phones if we really have to. I'm not suggesting that that's the way we ought to do it, but when push came to shove, you could run all the various communication apps, webinars, Zoom meetings, et cetera, you know, right off of your phone, your mobile. So uh, it's, it's taught us, you know, that we can do things that we never thought, like you said, um, other um, other points that I would make, uh, just be a, a student of your environment. Look at what's going on. Uh, the, the, the percent of online transactions for banks, it's, it's like 80%. Uh, trying to think of other benchmarks. Uh, retail sales, I mean, have jumped up to over 20% of total retail sales. When you think about the billions of dollars of retail sales that are done and how that is affecting the marketplace. So uh, be a student of your environment and, and what's going on around you. Uh, and it becomes pretty clear that, that this isn't something that's going to go away or that we're going to be retracing our steps. Uh, uh, look at the values of the, of, of the big uh, uh, internet companies have just gone through the roof and their sales are just... Uh, skyrocketed. So uh, this is something that uh, is not going away. And if we keep, if just keep our ear to the ground, uh, we'll know, we'll know that we're on the right track. All right. Last question. If you were leading an association and could only take one piece of advice in the book, what would it be? I think I'm going to cheat. You know, you know, you, you got to get your governance right. You've got to get your board right because nothing else is going to happen with a board that isn't going to support those kind of changes, either in your product line uh, or in your delivery systems. Uh, and so I, I really stand behind that. And we said it in both, both editions. If you're really going to affect change, you've got to get your governance right. Uh, but uh, the cheating is that uh, we've had such an opportunity to leapfrog our position in technology uh, that we were forced to, okay, but think of what we've learned and look at what we've been able to accomplish with the technology. And, and, and my concern or my advice is for, for crying out loud, uh, don't, uh, don't give it back. Uh, don't, don't let uh, people drag you back to what I think is pretty much a flawed model uh, that, uh, that they want to go back to the meetings, that they want to go back to the, 
the uh, the analog uh, model. Uh, so of course you're gonna you're not gonna have to be 100% virtual like we were, uh, but certainly don't don't lose the advances that that we've made in in using it uh, and and employing it to add value uh, down the road. I would absolutely agree. I'm encouraging association professionals to be thinking about a go forward strategy rather than a go back. There's a lot of pressure to go back to what's comfortable, what got us here, but what got us here is not going to get us where we need to go next. So uh, Harrison, thank you for being here today. It is uh, my privilege to be your co-author and I am looking forward to the conversations that uh, come. Hey, it has been, it has been a pleasure and it's been a great partnership and uh, couldn't have done it without you. Um, oh, likewise. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, likewise. I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. Mm-hmm.